Well, welcome to the first Herbert Smith Freehills M&A podcast. My name's Rod Levy, and I'm a partner in the firm based in Melbourne. Morning, Rod. My name's Courtney Dixon. I'm a senior associate based here in Melbourne. Yeah, this is the first podcast of what we hope will be a series of podcasts talking about M&A issues in Australia. Uh, Members of our team will discuss recent transaction and current issues. So today we're going to be talking about some key legal issues that arose in TAPCorp's combination with TATS Group, which became effective in late 2017. And this deal took about 14 months to get over the line after it was announced in October 2016. But these parties have a long history, don't they, Rod, going back well before 2016? Yeah, they do, Courtney. Um, yeah, just a bit of background. Um, you know, both companies are involved in um, gambling entertainment, uh, which is um, punting on horse racing um, mainly. Uh, and and TAPCorp's been trying to acquire the TATS business um, since about 2006, when it was knocked back by the ACCC um, at that time. Um, now, since then, the gambling industry has changed significantly, and it continues to evolve. And it's really been the advent of online gambling and people betting from their mobile phones, which is which has changed the landscape significantly. Uh, and that's led to the rise in corporate bookmakers uh, and the and the you know the worsening competition uh, position for the traditional gambling um, companies. So 2015, the parties were very close to agreeing a new premium merger of equals. I actually remember the deal was leaked on the Friday night uh, ahead of what we were hoping to announce on the Monday morning. So the deal did fall over then. But almost a year to the day, in October 2016, the parties did reach agreement on terms. This time round, it was a slightly different deal. Tabcorp were paying a premium. It was largely a script-based merger, and that's a theme that we'll come back to because it did give rise to, to issues throughout. Um, TAPCorp chairman, CEO and CFO would remain and the TATS chairman has subsequently been invited and has joined the, the, TATS, the TAPCorp board. The deal had limited conditionality. The competition approval condition was the key one and we'll come to talk about that. There was a significant number of gambling and regulatory approvals and then being a scheme there was the shareholder vote and court approval as well. That's right. Um, yeah, just on the, 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 we will talk about the competition approval condition because that was the main condition. And um, one of the features of the of the agreement uh, was there was a, a competition approval reimbursement fee. In fact, a break fee of thirty five million dollars that would be paid by TAPCorp to TATS in the event that the uh, um, the competition approvals were not obtained. And that was a key development, really, in the negotiations between the parties. TAPCorp had a very strong conviction about their strategy and approach and the deal this time round, and this was something that was, I think, very useful, really, in getting the TATS board to really put their weight and recommend the transaction. Yeah, that's right, and that was really part of the deal between the companies, which meant that TAPCorp was really in the driver's seat for um, setting the strategy in conjunction with TATS, um, but really, uh, it was it was run quite hard. We knew it would be a long road. Um, we didn't quite know how long it would be, I guess, when we started. But it was a it was it's been it was a fascinating process. Well, one of the other things I should mention at the outset is um, the the transaction was expected to give rise to very very significant synergies, um, approximately 130 million dollars worth of annual EBITDA synergies were expected once the combination of the two companies uh, had been completed. 
and the business has been integrated, and that's an, an incredible amount. And if if you if you think about uh, if you add one hundred thirty million dollars to the earnings of the companies, and you and you give that a a a a, a price earnings multiple, that is worth well over a billion dollars. So there was a lot of money at stake. And off the off the back of that synergies figure, there was a huge um, roadshow that was conducted, racing bodies. Um, and other players, interested interested stakeholders, as part of the deal, I think almost a hundred different stakeholder meetings were held just after the deal was announced. So there was enormous cooperation on both sides to really demonstrate the value of the synergies going forward for the transaction. We probably should now talk a bit more about the competition condition. Yeah. So um, in, in a scheme of arrangement, it's very common to have um, to have various conditions. And the ones you, you come across often would be foreign investment approval conditions, competition approvals, regulatory approvals. Often there's third-party approvals if there's a major contract involved. Um, and these conditions usually take some time to be satisfied. And the parties normally get about to try to satisfy them from the time the transaction is announced, whilst the scheme booklet is being prepared. And the idea is to get them satisfied just before the shareholders vote. This would normally take maybe three or four months. But the, the timing issues caused by these regulatory conditions can be very, very real, particularly in schemes of arrangement where the, where the conditions take longer. You know, pr- from practical terms, maintaining transaction momentum is very difficult, keeping employees of the target engaged, protecting against interloper risk. Obviously, there, there was an interloper on this transaction. The Pacific Consortium uh, came, came in with two proposals which were subsequently rejected. And particularly in the case of script deals like this was, Trying to limit downward pressure on the acquirer's share price is a real challenge. Often the, the acquirer's share price will come under heavy pressure if, if the market thinks that the deal isn't going to be completed, and that was certainly the case at times here with the ups and downs of the competition process. And, you know, the other thing, I think just leaving aside the competition approval, some other regulatory conditions um, can also have this impact. That very very discretionary. Uh, and can be can be difficult to demonstrate to the market where these are up to, um, which is which is something else that has to be managed. So looking back to the competition approval condition. Yeah. So so in this case, um, the parties announced the deal in October 2016. Uh, they then they then made a an application to the ACCC for an informal clearance, um, uh, hoping that the Commission would see the competition issues as we saw them and, and give it a tick, but uh, in March, in March uh, 2017, uh, the Commission came out with its statement of issues, which raised a few, raised one red light which we anticipated, which required the parties to divest the Odyssey Gaming business, um, and at that stage we'd already found a buyer. Yeah, for that, right. so that was that was okay, and they raised a couple of other issues which were of concern, uh, which ultimately we thought should not be a concern, but they they raised them anyway. Um, so at that point, uh, the parties then had to decide whether to, to continue with the ACCC or whether to switch to the alternative uh, procedure, which is going for a authorization from the Australian Competition Tribunal. And the advantage of that, well, there's two main advantages actually. The first advantage is that there's a there is a um, a, a statutory timeline, uh, so the the tribunal has to make their decision 
within a set period of time, three months. That's right. Uh, and, and secondly, anyone who seeks to object to the process, uh, they can certainly do so, but they have to give evidence and they can be subject to cross-examination in, in front of the tribunal. So, so that gives a, that, that, those two factors give much greater certainty to the parties. And the other key thing here was obviously there was significant stakeholder momentum behind this and the, the test before the competition tribunal allowed public interest benefits to be demonstrated, which is a much broader test than the, the, competi- the, the test adopted by the ACCC. So, so, so to get back to the story then, we, they, they made the application for authorisation. We had a hearing in um, May, June, and we got a decision in late June uh, whereby the tribunal authorised the transaction subject only to the Odyssey business divestment. Um, however, after that, the ACCC sought judicial review of the authorisation uh, and made an application to the full federal court. Um, this then raised a question for us on the corporate side whether we should uh, press on to uh, dispatch our scheme booklet uh, whilst this, while the application was being heard by the full court. That, that's right. And look, this is where um, we sort of were in agreement with TATS on this. We were keen to, to push on, but ASIC did have a quite a strong view on this. Their preference was that the scheme booklet should not be dispatched and, and therefore the scheme meeting not be convened until there was certainty as to the outcome of the full court's decision in relation to the judicial review application. And that would then flow on to having sufficient certainty about when the competition approval condition would be satisfied. And then thirdly, when this, when the when TATS would be back before the Supreme Court for approval of the scheme, assuming that TATS shareholders approved. It's interesting just to note as an aside that um, after this deal, ASIC has, has recently published their usual six-monthly report on corporate finance activities. Uh, this very issue is actually touched on in their report, and I understand they also speak to it at their corporate finance uh, liaison meetings. It's clear that ASIC is concerned about uncertainty in terms of satisfaction of conditions precedent in schemes of arrangement, um, and, and it really wants to make sure that parties dispatching scheme booklets and holding scheme meetings do have sufficient comfort and certainty about when regulatory approval conditions will be satisfied. And I think their concern is really um, about not bombarding retail shareholders with supplementary disclosure and piecemeal updates. They, their preference is that there just be one booklet and, and that's all-encompassing. Um, but I think there needs to be a recognition, and I think ASIC do recognise this, that, that sometimes in these processes it is, it is very, predict, very difficult to predict movements and sometimes it will be necessary to release supplementary disclosure. Yeah, that's right. It's, uh, I mean, ideally the parties also want to have you know, a single booklet going out and they don't want to bombard shareholders, but at the same time these transactions are time-sensitive and you mentioned before, Courtney, that the... You know there is pressure on 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 the on the share prices of a bidder undertaking a script transaction, and time is is really critical. Um, anyway, so recognising all these factors, uh, we were able to reach a, a position with ASIC, and ultimately the Supreme Court, whereby we dispatched our scheme booklet. Um, uh, before we knew the outcome of the of the judicial review application, before the full court had made its decision, and, and and so we had 
we allowed, I think from memory, we allowed about six weeks, which would have given us, we thought, probably two weeks after the decision before the vote was to be was to be held. But of course, what happened uh, was that, uh, contrary to our expectations, the full court uh, upheld one ground of the of the um, judicial review application. That's right, Rod. The Supreme Court then contacted TATS and wanted to understand what the federal court's decision meant for the scheme timetable. Ultimately, TATS decided to postpone the scheme meeting and also their AGM, which they did with a, with a one-pager. The parties then returned to the tribunal on an expedited basis, uh, and while this was running on the scheme side, a further supplementary scheme booklet was also prepared that was a more substantive document and contained considerable detail about the various potential outcomes in terms of the competition process. And that um, booklet was dispatched assuming that the scheme meeting would be held in December and, and the AGM was again postponed at that time. Yeah. Well, 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 yeah, and one of the issues we had was that there was a concern that the that even if we got through the, the tribunal again... Uh, one of the dissatisfied parties, which may be the ACCC or one of the corporate bookmakers, would again seek judicial review and push us back to the full court again. And they had a right to do that. And, 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 and therefore the timetable would drag on. Uh, now, there's, that gives rise to a couple of issues. Firstly, under the original deal, there was a sunset date, 31 December. If the transaction remained conditional on that date, either party could terminate the transaction, which I don't think either party wanted to do, but that was always on the cards. And and with the share price moving around and the possibility of rival bidders, there was always a chance that something may go wrong. So there was a lot of time pressure. The other thing that's important to understand is that the the authorisation um, was not actually, despite all we've talked about, it wasn't actually legal, it's not a legal requirement under Australian law to have the transaction authorised. It gives an immunity and it gives a lot of comfort. It gives complete comfort to the directors, but you couldn't actually press on and you could could have waived the condition. So we had all these issues going on about should we waive the condition uh, even if someone was to seek a judicial review. And they were the matters that we really wanted to pick up in this more fulsome supplementary booklet. And that sort of also gave rise to, to the process in terms of the timing of dispatch of that documentation. ASIC obviously have a policy on, on this, a pretty well-worn path that they suggest that at least 10 days' notice before a voting decision takes place is necessary. Uh, I think just the way the facts lined up on this transaction, uh, it was proposed that the, the material would go out and TAT shareholders would have about seven or eight days. There was a number of compelling arguments that TATS put to the court as to why it would be appropriate in this situation to have less than the 10 days suggested by ASIC. One was that the information would be up on ASX 14 days before the meeting. Two, and I've also had experience in other transactions with this, this transaction was heavily covered by the media. Um, I think that the public were generally quite aware of what was happening. Um, so that was something that also, I think, helped. The third thing was that um, TATS agreed to push, push back their proxy date, again, to make sure that shareholders had as much time as possible to deal with this. And ultimately, this was something that, that I think ASIC accepted as well, that the facts of this case uh, 
meant, meant that less than 10 days, a suggestion their policy would be appropriate. Yeah. And so, and so as it turned out then, we, we got the decision of the tribunal on the 22nd of November. Um, there was announcements made on the back of that, of course. Um, we then sent out the supplementary booklet that, that, you, that Courtney's just described uh, and, uh, and the, the meeting was set down for, I think, the 12th... I think it was Tuesday, the 12th of um, December... Um, and we were hoping that in the meantime we would get a confirmation from the ACCC that they would not be seeking judicial review. Um, as it turned out, we did get that, and that was that. I think that was that was after we'd dispatched our booklet, but but about a week before the vote. And then that same week, we also got a confirmation from Crownbet, who was the main yeah. corporate bookmaker uh, that, opponent. That's, but, that's, that, that, that's right, Rob. But it was the timing was. Was was a bit tricky, wasn't it? Because we had to, had approval to dispatch its, its supplementary booklet at the time of the court approving that dispatch. We weren't aware of when these these other items may come through. So we so Tats did foreshadow, didn't they, with the court that they may need to release further supplementary information, which was quite novel because typically you would need to go back to court to deal with this. Um, but in this situation, um, Tats made it clear that they would. If there were any other developments, they would announce it. They'd publish it in two different newspapers um, to bring as much attention to it as, as possible. And ultimately, the court was happy with that, which was a great outcome. Yeah. So anyway, also then ultimately, so we got through the legal hurdles. The vote was successful. We then went back to the Supreme Court. And the transaction was then implemented on, I think, Friday the 22nd Friday of the December. 22nd. So we got in there just before Christmas, which is a great thing to do. It's a great Christmas present for all the shareholders to get a cheque. It's great for the, for the humble lawyers, Courtney and I, to then uh, relax, say, for Christmas without having to, uh, to keep, keep looking after our clients' interests. So what were, what were the key takeaways, if we step back and think about that now? Well, I think the key... I think there's two, Courtney. I think the first one is that... Yeah, even though there might be uncertainty about when a condition is going to be satisfied, uh, it is possible for the parties to press on and seek the approvals and potentially update the... Uh, sorry, to, to seek the shareholder approval, I should say, and, and to possibly update the material going to shareholders through supplementary documents, through press releases or through um, advertisements and keep the transaction rolling, which is in the interest of all shareholders. I think that's the first one, press on. The second thing, I think, is that the the so-called 10-day rule that ASIC um, likes for 10 days between the dispatch until the meeting, there is some flexibility there, and you can accommodate that through the the things you've talked about. That's right. I think really it's about media exposure, getting the message up on ASX, making sure as many people as possible know about it. I think the only other point to mention, Rod, the other key takeaway is that if, if you have um, some other type of supplementary disclosure that you know you're going to be releasing, um, and I think it depends, it's, it's a question about the materiality of that information, you can flag that with the court and the court may, may permit you to release that without needing to come back before it. So that's just something else to keep in mind. Yeah, thanks. Okay, well, I think that brings us to an end of this podcast episode. Um, thank you for listening. Um, please let us have any feedback. You can find our details on the website. 
Um, we've, also, we've also written a newsletter article on covering some of these topics that you'll find if you go to our website, which is herbertsmithfreehills.com. Okay. Thanks, Rod. Looking forward to our next podcast update. Yeah, thanks, Courtney. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.